Hello and welcome to another Paro seminar. Uh, there's a slightly different background because I've just moved to a new apartment. Um, but same kind of content. I'm very excited about this seminar. I don't know if it's just because I moved to a new place and um, kind of getting reinvigorated about courses and seminars. But um, it's also because it centers around a theme that I suppose has driven uh, a lot of my work uh, really since I started this project of Pyrotheology and it is the question of salvation. Uh, what does the cure mean? So there's different names for it. So in politics there is the idea of you know what is the beyond of capitalism say? Like is, is there another stage in history in which we can organize society in a way that um, is more uh, less alienating? So, you know, we're not in jobs that we feel alienated from. We're not giving the majority of our time uh, to, you know, uh, kind of work for low wages, giving profits to other people, et cetera, et cetera. Is there, is there uh, another uh, uh, age beyond capitalism? So you've had slavery, feudalism, capitalism. So that's like, what is the cure politically? Uh, what is the cure psychologically, um, uh, you know, in terms of our personal lives? Uh, is there a way for us to live in healthier ways uh, with ourselves and with the people who are around us? And, you know, what is the cure um, in, the, in, the, in the realm of religion? What does salvation mean? And there's different names for these cures. Um, and they're all interlinked. And so my work has always been interested in how do these dimensions interweave and in many ways uh, I do see religion and by religion I'm not really talking about confessional religion I'm not talking about what you see on a Sunday in the average church although I do think that some of those communities touch on these ideas but I I'm talking about uh, in fact what I've called religionless Christianity uh, after Bonhoeffer Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, is I would say um, not to be put alongside these other cures, but rather is an invitation into a different form of life that will have an impact on our personal and our political lives. So whenever I talk about salvation, um, what I'm talking about is uh, a way of being in the world that will have an impact in how we interconnect uh, with other people and with ourselves and with the environment and not only at a very personal level but also at a political level. So uh, salvation in a sense for me permeates these other dimensions of life, the cultural, the political, the personal. And I want to unpack uh, what that means. Um, and I'll start with the notion of apocalypse. So uh, there's a religious notion, of course, of the apocalypse. And the apocalypse literally means the end of an age. Uh, whenever you talk about something apocalyptic happening, you're not really talking about what's going to happen on the other side of something. You're talking about a type of absolute destitution, a total destruction of an order, of a way of, a way of organizing the world. So apocalyptic movies or movies in which there might be a, a, a nuclear holocaust or there might be an environmental catastrophe or a meteorite hitting the earth and it fundamentally destroys uh, the current state of life. Uh, now, in, in a common sense notion, what happens when we think of apocalypse either in religion and you've got you know, apocalyptic writings that talk about the second coming of Christ and the, the kind of war of the devil and all of that and then this new age that comes afterwards. So whether it's in the religious world or say in the, in the environment or the political world, the idea of apocalypse is followed by the notion of a type of new world. So if you're watching an apocalyptic movie, uh, maybe the meteorite destroys you know, two thirds of the world, but the movie will end with civilization restarting and you'll generally have a vision of this society as uh, more closely connected with nature, uh, more satisfied with a simpler life or whatever it is, right? So it ends with the, the building of some sort of new society out of the ashes of the old. But the problem with this um, is that it's not apocalyptic enough, right? 
in Apocalypse, everything is transformed except for us, right? So if you're the hero of the movie, you don't die, everything's destroyed, and then on the other side, you start to rebuild. So everything is destroyed except for our basic way of being in the world, our basic way of desiring. The only thing that's really changed is maybe we were dissatisfied in the previous life and now we're satisfied in the new life. So again, a common motif in movies is somebody might be alienated by technology and work and bad relationships. And then at the end of the movie, on the other side of the apocalypse, their relationships are restored, they are less alienated from their environment, they're happier, right? So the, the change is I'm unfulfilled and alienated and now I am more substantially, substantively connected with the earth, more connected with my family, reconciled, etc. Now, what I want to say is that the, the, a truly apocalyptic event, I think in the kind of like theological sense of the term, is, is a little bit different. That actually it's an event that is so seismic that even if nothing changes in the external world, you are radically changed. And so because you're radically changed, your entire way of interacting with the world is radically changed. So this was um, something that I, I think it was the book, um, The Idolatry of God, uh, where I used the example of a vending machine. And I said, like, the world is like a vending machine, and there are so many products in this vending machine that are each promising us completeness and wholeness and satisfaction, less alienation. And, you know, there's religion and there's, 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 uh, uh, there's materialistic things in there, you know, it might be Jesus or it might be a, a beautiful house or a beautiful person or whatever it is. And we're all putting our money into the vending machine and hoping that we get the one thing that's going to fix us, right? Because if there's one thing we know about contemporary society is eventually we'll buy the thing that really works. <laughs> um, and uh, that's how we think. We don't think it consciously, of course, that's why it's funny, but there's something weirdly true about it. Again, that's why it's funny. You know, a joke is often something that expresses a truth that we know, but that we kind of uh, don't know that we know. So we're all in there trying to get the thing that's going to fix us. And I was trying to argue in that book that the, the, the event of salvation isn't putting the money in and getting the right thing out of the vending machine, but rather taking an axe to the vending machine itself and destroying it and entering into a new form of being in the world. Because here's the thing about salvation. If nothing else, and this is a very conservative notion, right? Uh, salvation and eternal life does not mean the mere continuation of our present life into the future. That's what Hegel called a bad infinity, where you just like, it's like an infinity where one, two, three, four, five, right? You have a row of numbers and it just goes on forever, right? Um, as Nietzsche once kind of pointed out through a parable, the, the ancient parable where there is um, King Midas, I think, who chased down this demon, captured the demon, and then forced the demon to answer a question. And the question was a simple one, well, simple to ask, but is what is the secret to happiness? And the demon laughs. He says, you really want to know. He says, the secret is to never be born. But if you've already befallen that misfortune, then you can pray for an early death, right? So it's a really powerful little parable. Um, and the point that Nietzsche's drawing out from that is that if you don't enjoy your life, then the idea of it continuing on forever is not heavenly, it's, it's hellish. Heaven would be people screaming for the end, right? If you do not enjoy life, if you cannot get a depth and a density out of existence, then the mere continuation of it would be horrific. Now, the response to that might be, well, yes, but what if you got everything you wanted, right? What if the other side of apocalypse is that you're unhappy in this life because maybe you're alienated, you're downtrodden, but in the next life you'll get everything you want? But the, the point is that would be even worse. And that's stuff I've covered in other seminars, but that's the idea of melancholy, that unhappiness that comes from getting everything you want 
just continually getting, getting, getting. That wouldn't be heavenly. That would be that would be horrific. Imagine go and of course there's the twilight zone called a nice place to visit. A real classic twilight zone where a guy gets that and he realizes this isn't heaven, it's hell. He first of all he thinks he's in heaven because everything he wants he gets. But then he eventually realizes that this is horrific, right? So Salvation can't mean, an eternal life can't mean the mere continuation of life forever. It has to mean a change in the, the, the um, texture of our lives right now. It has to be something that occurs not so much uh, uh, horizontally but vertically, right? So if you think of a, a, an infinity horizontally, it's the numbers one, two, three, four. If you think of a uh, uh, of infinity that's vertical. It's like right there in a moment in time, but goes up and down forever, right? So there's something about a different density of life that occurs, right? And what does that mean? I'm actually just gonna turn off the air conditioner because it might, I don't think you can hear it, but you might be able to. So I will suffer being too hot for the sake of the seminar. Give me one second. And uh, do let me know if, um, uh, if you couldn't hear it, because then in future seminars, I'll have it on. <laughs> so where was I? Oh, yeah. It, it, the, and it's a very conservative notion that then this idea of salvation then isn't the mere continuation of old being. In fact, there's a term new being, a new being, a new way of, a new creation, right? And what is that? Now, it's all very well to say we can be a new creation. But it must mean something or it's meaningless. It's just a word that you throw out there. So I want to delve into what that term could mean. Very, very empirically, right? And I want to talk about it in relation to a true apocalypse. An apocalypse in which we are so transformed that our way of engaging with the entire world is different. So nothing necessarily changes in the external world, but something transforms in the internal world that has a a qualitative uh, effect in our lives, in our personal lives, and if and, uh, we can, you know, experience this at a wider societal level, will have an impact on wider society. Okay, so that's what I want to do. <sighs> Let's do it. Um, I want to start off with this interesting phrase that Diogenes the Cynic said. Um, and it's why this seminar is called Telling the Difference Between Identical Wines, right? So Diogenes the Cynic was this fascinating philosopher uh, uh, who lived, it was around the times of the kind of the, the early Greek philosophers. And he was one of the greats. There's very little known about him. He's just got, we've just got lots of aphorisms, but he lived, he lived his philosophy and he really uh, turned away from society and he lived a doggish life. So cynic means doggish. So he was Diogenes the cynic because he was, he was a man who lived like a dog. And uh, I think it was Plato called him Socrates gone mad, right? Now, there's so many interesting sayings of Diogenes, but one of them is he was once asked, what's your favorite wine? And Diogenes responded, the wine that someone else has paid for, right? It's a clever little saying. So what's your favorite wine? It's the wine that someone else paid for. So what, what does that mean? Well, first of all, he's, he's basically perceiving something um, that is later systematized, that there is a difference between two identical wines, one that belongs to someone else and one that's your own, right? And we all kind of know this, right? We don't maybe think about it, but when, you, when it's presented to you, you go, oh yeah, there can be two identical things, and the one that we really are drawn to is the one that is out of reach, the one that someone else has worked for, the one that someone else wants. So I'll draw out two reasons why this is the case, uh, and they're interconnected. So the first is um, the wine that someone else has paid for, the wine that someone else has worked for. Uh, it, it's something that they desire, right? The fact that they have worked for it, the fact that they have paid for it, means that they desire it. And at a very fundamental level, we desire the desire of the ones we desire, right? So my desire 
is to have the desire of the one that I desire. That's probably the most, uh, or that is the most precious material on earth, to be desired by the ones that we desire. Um, so the fact that I'm seeing this other person desire this wine makes it much more interesting than the wine that I have right in front of me. And the person who is probably most famous for systematizing this notion and really kind of delving into the logic of it is René Girard. So René Girard is a thinker who based a lot of his anthropological work on uh, exposing the nature of what's called mimetic desire. Right. But there are others, you see it in psychoanalysis, you see it in Lacan, I think even better there. But, but, but René Girard is, is the one who really gets to the heart of how I desire what others desire. Uh, and you see this all the time in adverts. There's an advert I saw the other day from Gillette uh, of this firefighter who was shaving. And the firefighter is a guy, he's attractive, he's strong, he's, he's, he's heroic, right? He looks like he's a good father. All of these images are caught in the advert. And so I'm identifying with him. He seems like an interesting, cool guy. And then he desires Gillette razors for whatever reason, right? So he's shaving with a Gillette razor. And his desire for the razor can make me want that razor more than the one that I have in my bathroom. Right? Because I desire what that person desires. Um, I desire that person's desire and I desire the object that that person's desire attaches to. So that's one thing, mimetic desire. The second thing is uh, distance. Uh, the fact that I don't have it. The fact that it's over there. The other person desires it, the other person wants it. And what I have in front of me does not seem as interesting as what I don't have. Of course, you can say this in terms of uh, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? You're looking at something you don't have and it, it's got some extra dimension to it. So those are two elements that you can see play out that Diogenes is, is touching on that have been more systematically reflected on by other thinkers. Um, in terms of the second one, again, Lacan is probably the key there, or Freud, and um, in terms of the mimetic desire, René Girard. So the question is, what is that property? Like, what is, the, what is the property that that wine that the other person has, what has it that this wine doesn't? Now, of course, it's not a material property, and this makes us different from artificial intelligence, at least at the moment, because a computer, no matter how amazing it is, no matter how attuned it is to tasting wine, it will not be able to tell the difference between two identical wines, right? Only a human can do that, right? There's, there's a property that humans pick up on that a machine to date can't. And what is that property? And Lacan called it objet putia. So it's, it's, it's kept in the French to keep it a technical term, but small object A. It's an algebraic term. It's like there is something, a property, and we call it objet putia, which is the extra property that the other person's wine has. It's the extra property that makes something not just desirable because um, it will give you pleasure, but something that actually connects with your drive, right? Makes you really, really want it, makes you feel alienated without it. And that's object putia. Um, now, it of course is not a material property, but that's okay. I mean, I can say, um, I can say uh, Sherlock Holmes has a pipe and has a kind of a circular hat or oval hat, right? They're properties of Sherlock Holmes, but they don't exist, right? There's no, there's no real pipe. So, you know, properties can not exist, but still be properties. So there's this very weird virtual property called object A, objet putia, um, that makes something desirable. Uh, there was something else I was gonna say in relation to that. I don't know, it'll come back to me. So. In terms of this, this is a very human, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Shizak says this very well. He, he quotes a film, I think it's a Woody Allen movie, where a guy goes into a restaurant uh, or into a diner and says, uh, could I have some coffee without cream? And the waitress says, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have any cream. It'll have to be coffee without milk, 
right? And it's a, it's a clever joke, right? Because of course the coffee is the same. Coffee without cream, coffee without milk, exactly the same. Again, a computer couldn't tell the difference between those two types of coffee. But a human can, right? So think about it like this. In Northern Ireland, uh, say that I'm in a Protestant community, working class Protestant community, and right across the road are my Catholic neighbours, right? And say in all of the conversation that I'm having with my friends at the pub, I don't mention anything about my neighbours, my Catholic neighbours, right? Now, I also don't talk anything about Buddhism or Hinduism, right? And there are probably Hindus and Buddhists uh, in, in Northern Ireland. I don't talk about them. But the not talking about Hindus is different from the not talking about Catholics, right? The, the conversation is the same, but there is something that is missing that is itself part of the conversation. It has to be drawn into the conversation. It is not completely external to the conversation. Not talking about your Catholic neighbours is a, is, a, is a different type of withholding. So you've got a, this, a conversation that, you know, if you had two pubs where the same conversation was happening on two sides of the world, right? A pub in Australia where they're not talking about their Catholic neighbours and a pub in Northern Ireland where you're not talking about your Catholic neighbours. The two types of lack one is coffee without cream, one is coffee without milk, and it means something. So this is objet A, uh, or objet A. Um, now then, okay, so how does this objet A come into existence? Where, where does it arise from? Um, very briefly, i say this, is that it comes from what's called the big other. So I'm going to use different technical terms in this seminar, uh, but I'm going to try to define them as I go. So hopefully at the end of this, you'll have like a, a, some, some technical terms and hopefully I'll have defined them to some extent or you can look them up afterwards. But the big other, uh, in a nutshell, um, can be described as some substantial other out, out in the world that you believe in. That, that you want to please or reject, right? You've got, there's out there in the world, there is some substantive, non-divided, non-alienated other who you're alienated, you're self-divided, you've got, you've got contradictory desires, you don't know whether you should stay with someone or leave them, stay in that job, get a new job, where you should move to. You have all of these problems in your life, but, um, whether, whether we think it or not, we are often seduced by the idea that there is a substantive other out there. Maybe it's a different culture. Oh, if only I could move to that country where people are more connected with nature, right? Or if only I could um, have this person in my life, then everything would be great. They are wonderful, right? Or it can be a god or it can be any number of things, a substantive other. And the first substantive other is usually our parents, right? You, you're born, you're in a chaotic world, you're trying to make sense of it, and your parents can seem godlike, right? They can seem undivided, uh, substantive. I keep using the word substantive because that's the philosophical term, it's an important term, is this, a, a substance that is undivided, non-castrated is another way of talking about it, a non-lacking other. And so say you look to your mother, and you go, oh, my mum seems to have it all together. You're a very small child. And you want to please your mother, right? You want to be with them. You want to be protected by them, loved by them, recognised by them, right? As they want to be recognised by you. But you want to be recognised by them. But there's an there's a anxiety that's connected with that. And the anxiety is because there is a distinction that you experience with your parents in this example. This is an object lesson, right? With your parents, there's a distinction between their desire and their demand, right? Now, I'm gonna, these binaries are very useful. So this is what we do is we break down the world into various binaries to understand it. And um, there's, a, there's a problem because the common sense response to that is that uh, the binaries are a type of dualistic thinking 
and actually you know dualistic thinking is part of the problem and we need to think in terms of oneness um, but the, the problem with that is yes it, it correctly identifies a problem with thinking in these binary ways but it doesn't understand uh, basically what Hegel was talking about which is can be called parallax right uh, a parallax view um, if you have a parallax view of something it means from one angle, it looks like one thing, and from another angle, it looks like another thing, right? Now, what happens is we think there is a way, a God's eye view, to reconcile these two different things. But, to take an example from quantum mechanics, superpositioning is a form of parallax, right? You look at a light uh, in one way, and it looks like a photon. Uh, you look at light in another way, it looks like a wave, right? That's a parallax view. It's the very way that you view it, you see it, it's, it's different, fundamentally different. And, of course, Albert Einstein was the one who was trying to say, well, there must be a way of reconciling the parallax. And it was Niles Bohr who basically said, no, this is a true parallax, right? There is no God's eye view to reconcile these two views. They are not two things and they're not one either. <laughs> they are more than one and less than two. And that's important when I come to something like demand and desire. It's not that these are two separate things. These are like two different positionings in relation to one thing. And so when the child encounters the parent, you have the parent's demand and you have their desire and they're not completely separated and yet they're not completely unified. And I'll use a basic example to, to help unpack this, right? You have a parent with two kids, right? And the parent, the mother says to the two children, when you go to school, if there's ever a bully, don't fight back, don't, don't use violence. Violence is wrong, right? If, if you're being bullied, you come home and you tell me and I will sort it out. Right. So that's, that's a demand. Demand is what is said to you. This is what I want. And then, you know, the two kids go to school and let's say they both get bullied, but they both have different responses. One of the kids doesn't use violence, doesn't do anything, but goes home and tells their mother, right? And the other kid gives the bully a punch on the nose, right? So the two kids are brought back to the parent and the mother says to the child who didn't use violence, really good, you did the right thing, you didn't resort to violence, you know, you came and you told me, thank you. And then the mother says to the other kid, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have punched, you shouldn't have been violent, right? But let's imagine that, although that's the demand, that there's a sense in which you kind of feel that the mother is a little bit disappointed in the first child who didn't stand up for themselves and ran and told their mum, you know? And actually, there's a little bit of the mother seems to be kind of proud that the other kid stood up for themselves, right? Now, that's not said. It's not directly or indirectly. But it's just there is a sense in which it's the case. You can't quite put your finger on it. But you did what was demanded, but you didn't do what was desired. And on the other side, they did what was desired, but they didn't do what was demanded. This is constant when we're growing up and it's constant in our society. When you go to a party as an adult, there is the demands of what you should and shouldn't do, right? We know what we, how we should behave at a party, but there's also desire. A party where everybody does what they should do is boring, right? You need someone to kind of do something crazy, to say something silly, to kind of like mess it up and often go against the demand but somehow fulfill the desire, right? So we experience this all the time. We are, we are immersed in a world in which there is a distinction between drive and desire. Sorry, so, uh, demand and desire. And we have to navigate that. Now, the difference between the two has a name. The difference between demand and desire is experienced as anxiety. So for Lacan, Anxiety is a very particular term that has a very particular meaning and it is the experience of the disconnect between 
what's demanded of you and what is desired of you. Um, now, that's a real development in the notion of anxiety. And, uh, you know, even I, I used to use the, the, common, the common notion of anxiety is anxiety is the fear of nothingness. And that's not completely wrong, but Lacan kind of adds to it in a significant way where he says, no, anxiety uh, is a form of experiencing, it is a lack, the, the gap between these two things. So whenever someone is anxious, when you scratch beneath the surface, you find that they do not know what is being asked of them. They do not know what the other wants of them. It might be their partner, it might be their boss, it might be their parents, a society at large, God, whatever it is. Whenever someone is truly experiencing anxiety, you will find that they do not know how they fit into the desire of the other. What is demanded of me? What is expected of me? Who am I to you? So right, so you've got demand, you've got desire, you've got anxiety. And then just to add another phrase into this, you have then the development of fantasy. Fantasy begins when the child tries to stop up the anxiety, to close the gap between demand and desire. Fantasy begins with the question, who am I to the other? What do they want? And we start to, so in a way, fantasy, there's always a sense in which it's never private. We are fantasizing for another. If you want to be rich and famous, it's not enough to go, I want to be rich and famous. You've got to ask yourself, who do I want to be rich and famous for? Whose fantasy am I fulfilling? Like, who is it who, is, um, who I'm trying to satisfy by satisfying my desire? There's always a viewer to your desire, uh, another who is gazing, who is watching. We're not aware of it, but again, when you start to pick away at it, you realize that, oh yeah, the thing, the, the thing that is most me, my fantasies, my sexual fantasies, my daydreams, all that, like that stuff that I think is most me is actually not. It's actually a response to, to this anxiety between demand and desire of the other. So, right, what happens then is we have this disconnect between demand and desire, we have this anxiety, and then in that frame, we create a frame, and certain objects become fantasy objects, certain objects uh, promise to get rid of that, that dilemma, that parallax view between these two positions. And that's what um, that's why, that's why fantasy works, right? You know, says some objects are infused with this excessive desire. They seem to promise something because they promise that we will get rid of our alienation, that, that we will get rid of our self, um, self-dividedness, um, that we can be substantive, that we will answer the call of the substantive other, that we will find substantive existence in responding to that, right? So I start to desire certain things beyond their utility. It's no longer drinking a coffee because I get pleasure from it. It's, it's some objects become infused with objet a, with some extra dimension, right? Okay, so this gets us to the heart of a very human problem. It's this, this object A that causes so much of our violence against ourselves, other people, our world, our frenetic pursuit of things that we think will fix everything, uh, or our hatred of other people who seem to have the thing that we want, right? So you could basically say that what distinguishes us from other animals on the planet is not like the violence of like killing for food or for shelter or anything like that. It's the excessive thing. It's torturing, not killing. It's it's wanting 10 shelters, right? One house, wanting bigger shelters, not wanting one, right? There is this excessive drive, what's called death drive, right? This drive for more, more, more that is largely absent from the rest of the animal kingdom, right? We have been derailed. At a certain point in human evolution, we derailed. And uh, an object A became a property that we kind of orbited around. 
So let me see, where are we now? Yeah, so this, I mean, by the way, there's a theological name for this. That's original sin for me. Sin means separation. Original sin means a separation that happens before there's anything you're separated from. So to be human is to experience this self uh, uh, div divisiveness, this, this lack, right? And we want to fill it. We want object A to fill it, we, and we will do anything to get it. So sin is kind of any activity that you do in order to feel whole and complete, to get rid of the contradictions and the deadlocks in your life. That's why it's nothing to do with being bad as such. You can be in sin if you're working for a charity, if you're having a child, if it's something that you think will um, close the gap in your alienation, then it is connected with this. But again, I've talked about that elsewhere, so I'm not going to talk about that in depth because otherwise we'll be here all day. Um, so we want to get keep moving. Uh, anything that has object A in it, it can be called, one of the terms Freud called it is the thing. The thing that you want. The lost object is another term for it, right? The thing that you want, that you want to grasp. And the problem is, if you ever get it, right? you realize it isn't it, because object A only exists as a property when there's distance. As soon as the distance is removed, you might have something that's valuable, but it's not something that will deliver on its promise. So Lacan had this great saying, he said it I think in, in um, seminar seven, where he said, God has every perfection except one, existence, right? And so what does he mean here? Well, this is kind of like a reference to an old debate in the philosophy of religion, where Anselm argued that, that God must exist because the word God, when we use the word God, even if we don't believe God exists, when we use the word God, we mean a being that is perfect, right? We mean a being of which none greater can be conceived. So if I say God, then I am talking about omniscience, uh, omnipresence, omnipotence. I'm talking about perfect justice. All of these qualities is what I mean. But then if I say that God doesn't exist, then I'm in a logical contradiction because I am saying God, which is a being that has every perfection, doesn't exist, which means this, this being that has every perfection lacks one perfection, and that's existence. Because to exist is, to, is better than to not exist, right? And Anselm says, God doesn't just exist, God necessarily exists, because that is the most perfect way of being. We exist, but contingently, right? I, I die, but God exists of necessity. That's the perfect type of being. So basically, Anselm says, if you say God doesn't exist, what you're really saying is, a being that has to exist doesn't exist. And he says that's foolish, right? It's, so it's called the ontological argument. It's a really fascinating argument. It's fun to think about. Um, but that was the argument. Um, and then Immanuel Kant comes along. And Immanuel Kant, one of the greatest philosophers of the Enlightenment, kicks off the Enlightenment. He, he basically says, right, there is a mistake, right? And the mistake is thinking that existence is a property. Existence isn't a property. Existence is like a clothing line upon which you hang properties. So I do not say, you know, this horse has four legs, it's six foot tall and exists. Existence is not a thing. It's really kind of like what everything has to be a property. So anyway, that, that's kind of an argument that's going, that was going on. And so uh, Lacan playfully uses this and he says, well, God has every perfection except existence. It's the one perfection God doesn't have. And what he means is the thing he's talking about, he's not talking about God, he's talking about the thing that we want. The thing that you really desire, it has every perfection. That person you want to go out with, that house that you want, that holiday, whatever it is, it has every perfection. It looks amazing, incredible, it's supernatural, it's, it's going to fix everything. It only lacks one thing existence. So that's why if you ever get it, it doesn't work because it's the one property it doesn't have. It has all of the other ones, but not that. So it's a, I think it's a very clever little saying. We have this frenetic desire to get it. Okay. Now, what time is it? Right. We're doing okay. I've got like two more um, things that I want to talk about. This 
whole way of thinking means that as human beings, we are naturally uh, uh, wired to keep pursuing objects that will fulfill us, right? Just that's where we're naturally wired for that by the very nature of subjectivity itself. Because, and just to add another term to this, is I've talked about substance uh, as being undivided, at one with itself. Subject in philosophy means at something that is divided in itself. So to be a subject, you have to uh, be able to objectify other things, to see yourself as distant. I am not the camera in front of me. I am not the picture behind me. And weirdly, I am not myself, right? I can reflect on myself and make myself into an object by talking about what I do, what height I am, where I was born. I can do all of that. But to do that, I have to have a distance. So subjectivity is by definition um, distancing. It's alienating. I am not one with my surroundings. A rock is a rock, right? But I am not. Right? So there's a there's a so and if you think about it in three ways, you've got like rocks that are not conscious. You have certain animals that are conscious, and then you have some animals that are self-conscious, right? And they're three different levels. So if you're not conscious, you're the closest to being substance. Uh, I don't think you are. We'll come to that in a second. But you know, you're substance of a kind. If you're conscious, like a snail has some sensory uh, ability to tell the distinction between itself and its environment, right? So there's consciousness. And then self-consciousness is the ability to see yourself separate from your environment. So to be a subject is to be divided. Um, and why was I saying that? Oh yeah, right. So we're a divided subject seeking something that will be that will that has object a the thing that that is infused with this magical property the property that has the thing that has every perfection except existence now then this puts us in a dilemma because we think that pleasure is in the getting and we are dissatisfied until we get the thing right but in psychoanalytic terms, we have to make a distinction again, like a parallax distinction between pleasure and enjoyment. Pleasure is the, um, let's say, pleasure is the positive feeling you get from having something that you want. And enjoyment is the positive feeling you get from not getting it. And actually, that's not even a good way of saying it, and you'll see why in a second, right? Um, but enjoyment is connected with a certain... Uh, a certain pleasure of not getting, right? And, in, and, and pleasure itself, so yeah, it's, it's hard to make the distinction, right? Pleasure, let me think of another way to say it. Pleasure is when you get something that you wanted, a cup of coffee, going out with friends to the cinema, uh, you know, going out with someone you're attracted to, getting the job that you want, right? There's a certain pleasure to that. Enjoyment is the struggle and the, the not getting it, right? So a good example is a child at Christmas. Two weeks before Christmas, they are so hyped up about the Christmas presents, about Christmas Day. And the pleasure is in opening the Christmas presents on Christmas Day. But enjoyment is the intensity of their feeling in the two weeks before it, or the four weeks before it. Or think of a holiday. A ho there's the pleasure of being on holiday and there's the enjoyment of waiting for it, right? That's why you're never just paying for the holiday. You're also paying for the enjoyment, which is not getting it. So, you know, don't buy a holiday last minute because then you don't get, you know, you're not paying for enjoyment, you're just paying for pleasure, right? But the issue is, because of the way that we are wired, we can't enjoy our enjoyment, right? Uh, and that's why I say the positive feeling was a bad way of saying it, is we are condemned to not enjoy our enjoyment. Just like the kid at Christmas, they are not enjoying their enjoyment. They can't sleep, they can't eat, they're just thinking about it all the time, they can't do other things because they've got so much weight in the object, the thing, and not the aim, the direction, right? So, so much of our lives is an inability to enjoy our enjoyment. We can think of this in terms of the cunning of desire, right? The cunning of desire is that uh, I think that I want the new house, 
But desire is flowing in my inability to get the house and me kind of struggling for it, saving up the money and all of that. But I don't enjoy that enjoyment. I not, I'm, not, I'm not enjoying the desire. The desire is painful to me. But what I need to do is shift my focus so that my focus is no longer on the object, but the aim, the struggle itself. And by just shifting the focus, you can enjoy your enjoyment. And there's the theological term for that is joy. Joy is enjoying your enjoyment. Uh, I talk about this in The Fundamentalist, which will come out this week if you're watching live. Um, it's the notion of, of joy as enjoying your enjoyment. Whereas maybe you know, you're, you're waiting for your holiday and you, then you suddenly go like, hold on a second, it's actually the holiday will be fine, right? The holiday will be okay. It's not gonna change my life. It's not gonna make everything better. It's gonna be nice. So I can actually take pleasure in the kind of the, 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 the process of running up to it and not just be so focused on the object that I don't enjoy my enjoyment, right? So joy is connected with not having, which is really interesting. Now, the question is, how do we do this? How do we move to a point where we can enjoy our enjoyment? And what political consequences and personal consequences come from this? I don't think I'm gonna have time to get into that but I'm gonna, but I'll, I'll, I'll maybe point in some directions, right? So for Hegel, the, the way to do this is very, very precise, is that you have to, the veil of illusion has to fall and you have to fully confront the reality that the substantive other isn't substantive. They are also subject, which means they are also divided, not at one with themselves. Now, Hegel's ultimate insight, which is probably the greatest insight of civilization, um, and he, he called it absolute knowledge uh, because he didn't think that there's any way of going beyond it. This is an insight that, that there is no way of uh, undermining, overturning, or anything like that. Uh, it is the idea that it's not just other people who are subjects. All of reality is a type of subject. And in, in, in other words, all of reality is divided. Um, and his whole work, his whole incredibly difficult work, is kind of like unpacking what that means in an incredibly precise way. And before I get to what it means in terms of reality itself, let's talk about it in terms of like, you know, the experience of your mother or your father. It is the point when you realize that they don't know what they desire. You can't fulfill their desire because they can't fulfill their desire. They're as divided as, and as alienated as you are. And as you identify with your family, and then you see your family, your parents, as divided subjects. An example I've used before, but was when I first beat my dad at chess, and he probably let me win. I don't know what age I was, but there was a point when, when I was convinced that I'd beaten him, so he, he fooled me well enough, right? Um, and. It was this mixed feeling. One, oh, I finally beat my dad. He taught me chess. We'd been playing for years and bam, there, I got one. I beat him. But also this trauma of seeing that my dad was a divided subject and, and, and not this Superman, right? Uh, it's both a, it's a bittersweet experience. But when you experience the big other, the other as also divided, you start to become freed from this wiring in which we are frenetically pursuing something that will fulfill us, that destroys our relationships with ourselves, other people, the environment, everything. It, it causes so much violence and, and so many problems in our society. Like I think it can be boiled down to like the central problem. Um, can help free us from that. And this is why Hegel, Hegel had a reading of Christianity that I think is, I think he was really the first to, to really see this. And we still haven't, we still haven't delved to the depths of it, is he says that this happens in Christianity, where he says that basically, so the, the, the process is this, I have a big other who I think is perfect, and I identify symbolically with them, right? And then, they, then I experience their dividedness from within. I'm symbolically identifying with them, so whenever I see them as divided, I... I, I realize there's no way out of my alienation. That's part of what it means to be human. And therefore, I'm no longer um, 
caught by the lure of a lost object that will get rid of all the alienation. And therefore, I can start to enjoy the struggle of life and the fact that there are some things that are better than others. But, and, I, and here's the funny thing. You can actually accomplish more. Like the response is often, well, if you lose the idea that getting that house is going to make you whole and complete, then you're not going to fight for like a, maybe a better home for you and your family. But it's the other way around. In psychoanalysis, what you discover is that when we have the fantasy that something will fix everything, we so want to hold on to that fantasy that we don't want to get it, right? We'll always self-sabotage. So if you think that being with the perfect person, the one will fix everything, you'll discover that you keep breaking up with people, right? Whenever they don't match up, you'll keep looking for the one. Every time you get to some point of, of moving forward in the relationship, you'll pull back because you're caught in the fantasy of this perfect one. And in a way, you haven't let that die and that means you can't have a good relationship. It means you're always condemned to this kind of experience. Um, so weirdly, when you are freed from the idea that something's going to fix everything, you can then start to try to accomplish it. Because you go, well, it might make my life better, it might make the life of other people better, um, but it's not going to fix everything. And I can enjoy the struggle for it as well. There can, I can enjoy my enjoyment, I can get joy right now in christianity this is for hegel the first time that this is fundamentally expressed in a cosmic way in a historical way let's say where he says that god is someone we identify with god is the ultimate name for the non-divided other god becomes human so substance becomes subject but we identify with God in Christ, so we symbolically identify with God. And in fact, we identify with the crucifixion. We pick up our cross and carry it. So we are supposed to undergo the crucifixion subjectively, subjective destitution, right? And on the cross, Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means that God experiences the, sub the subject God. God experiences the dividedness. So in other words, my alienation, I'm alienated from a substantial other. No, the other also experiences alienation. And in my experience of alienation, I am one with the absolute, right? And then that opens up resurrection, the epoch of the Holy Ghost, which is a desubstantialized God, God as subject, right? Which is the collective of the Holy Ghost, um, which means living a type, a form of collective that is freed from the frenetic desire for the lost object, where we are able to struggle to make a better world. Where we are, and, and to be honest, before you even struggle to make a better world, just collectives of people who are libidinally disinvested from that pursuit is itself transformative. If you have enough community, that's why I believe in church of this type, because if you have enough communities that are libidinally unplugged, from the frenetic pursuit of the lost object, I think that has a very powerful effect on society at large as a whole. And this means weirdly, because something that's interesting, um, I talked about this on The Fundamentalist, is that a lot of prejudice and racism is based on the substantiality of the other. So what Edward Said called Orientalism, where you fantasize that the other sex or this other race, this other community are closer to nature, are not divided like we are. And it sounds lovely to say, oh, that, that, that tribal group, they are more at one with nature. They are less alienated, right? But Orientalism is the ultimate form of, of prejudice because they, the other has not reached the level of ethical being that you have. So you have the responsibility, right? You have the, you take on the guilt of the world because the others aren't as divided as you. They're not even ethical subjects. They're more like animals, right? Who, who you can't hold a dog accountable for what they do because they're a dog, right? So this notion of the substantial other is a way of praising the other sex or whatever, but while actually denigrating them, that we are all divided subjects and that's that's the universality that's why we can all unite because we unite as divided subjects um, so christianity and it's called kenosis in christianity is a self-emptying of god it's a double kenosis the self-emptying of god and then the emptying of god by god so the first is 
emptying into humanity and the second is experiencing the self-division and when you and this this is what churches for this is what paratheology is it's about helping someone symbolically undergo that through the liturgical structure so the liturgical structure basically enacts this drama and by enacting the drama the individuals who are in transference to the the liturgy they undergo the event of salvation in their bodies in themselves entering into the collective of the holy ghost and with that i th oh yeah so as i say this thing and what is what does uh subtraction look like i'll say one thing about that and then and then we'll finish up uh Libidinal disinvestment means you're no longer, oh, because oh, this is what's connected with the racism thing, is you're no longer either wanting to identify with the substantial other to get something that will make you substantive or hating the substantive other, right? Um, you kind of like just are no longer invested in that fight at all. You are detached, disinvested. And it's like, and I've used this example before, but in reality TV, right? Reality TV exists because we are either we love the people that we're watching or we hate them, right? Those viewing figures just show up the same. Whether you're viewing out of irony or hatred or love and desire, um, well, it's desire in both, in both cases, right? But whether it's, it's through irony and hatred or it's through love and um, a desire to have that lifestyle for yourself, you're still giving eyeballs to the show and then the advertisers will still put their adverts on the show. The only way you get rid of reality TV is when you no longer watch it. You no longer care. You don't watch it out of love, but you don't watch it out of irony either. You just want to get on with your life and live in a different way. And that's very, very powerful when it comes to society. If enough people unplug from the lost object, what happens is the, the current system of alienation begins to weaken and weaken and weaken. It's not in attacking it or in loving it. It's in somehow not being invested in it. And that, I think, is salvation. Okay, I'll just look quickly to see if there are any questions, but I don't think there are um, because... Uh, oh yes, there's one here from Kyle who says, did Hegel have thoughts about the role of resurrection in Christianity? Um, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, he, for, for Hegel, he really did see this three-part structure. Like he did, he, he, he sees the resurrection, in fact, more conservatively than conservatives in a sense, because for, for Hegel, the resurrection didn't just happen. It had to happen. It's a logical necessity. But you can go a step further than that and, and you would say it has to happen even if it didn't, right? It, the resurrection is a logical necessity, not necessarily a historical necessity. Um, and that seems weird, but it's almost like what, uh, what was the movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, gets into this where it's, it's like Paul continues to preach Christ crucified um, and then you know, Jesus turns up and says, I didn't die on the cross. And Paul says it doesn't matter, like it had to happen. So crucifixion and he's preaching resurrection. So in a way, Hegel is saying that resurrection is a necessary third step to crucifixion or what Lacan calls subjective destitution. When you experience the self-alienation of the substantive other in yourself, you then enter into a different form of the absolute. So Hegel actually was a, he was a Lutheran Christian. He was in a way... Uh, the big, I mean, Karl Barth said this. Karl Barth said, "Why did Hegel? Why was Hegel not uh, the next Aqu uh, Thomas Aquinas, right? Because he was as good as Aquinas. You know, he he should have he should have been the Protestant Aquinas." And then and then Barth critiques him and says, "Why, right?" But but Barth's question is right. Is like I think Hegel is the the Aquinas of the contemporary age, um, but. That never happened because I think his reading of Christianity is is too radical. We haven't we haven't uh, unpacked it yet. We've still got a couple of hundred years, I think, of doing that. But yeah, resurrection is the is basically abs what Hegel calls absolute knowledge. It is the community that lives in the contradiction, where you realize that contradiction isn't a contingent thing that you can get rid of, but is a necessary part of existence itself. Oh yeah, and on that, I did 
promised that I would uh, connect how substance is subject on a cosmic level. Um, you see, basically, Darwin has a name for this because evolutionary theory is a type of um, divid dividedness within biology that creates evolution. Um, you have within mathematics, in the very beginning of the 20th century, you have Gödel, who shows that mathematics is inherently self-contradictory. You can even see that in Bertrand Russell's critique of Frege. So in mathematics, you see, and mathematics can be called the language of reality. And then in the mid 20th century with Niles Bohr, uh, you know, uh, Albert Einstein opened up the way for it. And Bohr comes in and says, yeah, that we find that reality itself is parallax. So Albert Einstein opened up the way, but, but, but couldn't go the whole hog. So what you have in this incredible period of the 19th and early 20th century is you have this insight that, that of absolute knowledge happening in a variety of fields, in philosophy, in mathematics, oh, in, in psychoanalysis through what's called the symptom, because the symptom is the contradiction that holds the person together. So you've got, and Lacan really, really figures that out in the late 20th century. So you've got, you've got he calls it the santom. The santom is the inherent contradiction that holds the subject together. So you have, you have Hegel in philosophy, you have Darwin in biology, you have Gödel in mathematics, you have Bohr in physics, you have Lacan in the realm of psychology. Uh, and Hegel would say that's resurrection. That's the resurrection event was testified in it.